a lot of times the reason why organizations move slowly with respect to like delivering change in software is fear. A lot of times what's holding you back is not the quality of your development team, but technical debt and the fear of changing code or the, the fear of making changes to software that's poorly understood. And that's holding you back. You know, I think the connection that folks are making now is like, if your engineering teams are moving slow, if you're if you're developing software slowly and you can't deliver change at a rapid pace, you're falling behind. And the, the connection there is like, you're sort of giving your teams fewer at-bats, right? If your engineering teams can't move quickly, then you're unable to try out new ideas. You're unable to experiment. You're unable to really move quickly enough to deliver great customer experiences. And I think once you accept that, like the, the connection between moving quickly and moving with confidence and delivering business outcomes becomes much more clear. Today, we're joined by CTO and co-founder of LaunchDarkly, John Kodamal. LaunchDarkly is a feature management platform that gives developers total control of their code so that they can ship quicker, reduce risk, and reclaim their nights and weekends. We're going to talk about why having tools that help devs build with confidence is essential to a successful DevOps culture, and John's top tips for enterprises who are early in their DevOps adoption. Welcome to DevOps State of Mind, a podcast where we dive deep into the DevOps culture and chat with friends from small startups and large enterprises about what DevOps looks like in their organizations. I'm Lise from LogDNA. Join us as we get into a DevOps state of mind. All right. Hey, John. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is super fun. Um, can we just, before we dive in, tell our listeners a little bit about LaunchDarkly and the problems that you guys are solving? Yeah, LaunchDarkly is a startup. I'm the co-founder and CTO of LaunchDarkly. Uh, we were founded about seven years ago. Um, we're based out of Oakland, but obviously, like a lot of other companies post-COVID, we've become increasingly a, a remote company. We are pioneers in the space of feature management, which I know we're going to spend a, a chunk of time um, talking about. We are about uh, 350 folks these days. Um, we've raised several rounds of VC funding. We just closed a $200 million Series D round. Yes, that's so amazing. So we have about you know, 25% of the Fortune 100 using the LaunchDarkly platform and over 2,500 or so enterprise customers taking advantage of the, of the platform in total. So cool. Yeah, I mean, LaunchDarkly has been on my radar for quite a while. Before LogDNA, I worked at Bitnami. We were very familiar and friendly with you guys as well. And I've had the chance just on the partner marketing side to work with some folks at LaunchDarkly. And I have to say, everybody is awesome, super friendly, just really like smart, cool group of people. So great job. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we've been really intentional about our culture. And so I'm glad to see that reflected in the interactions you've had with our with folks on our team. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody is amazing. I was just at KubeCon in LA last week first in-person event for a long time. And it was nice to to see some of the folks and meet some new people from the LaunchDarkly side. So that was great. For people listening who don't know, can you just tell us what feature management is? Absolutely. There's a lot of ways to describe feature management. And one of the ways that I like to describe it is it's an identification of a broken process in the way that we release software. Um, and so the way I'll describe that is like traditionally when people were deploying software, 
they kind of conflated two steps together, deploying software and releasing software. Deploying software meant also releasing it to everybody. So, you know, you'd package up an artifact, you'd put it out on a server, and then you'd point all your traffic to it. And everybody would be experiencing that new version of the software. And the flaw that we recognize, the flaw that we that, um, that feature management tries to address is, well, those, really, those steps should really be decoupled. Um, you should be able to deploy your software, stick it on a server, and be able to point or route traffic to it. But you should be able to release that change in a much more granular way. And you can use that more granular release process to mitigate risk, to expose the change to a smaller set of users, to reduce the blast radius and the impact if something is going wrong, and also to more rapidly roll that change back. And so when you decouple deploying software from releasing software, it just unlocks a massive amount of additional superpowers for your team to capitalize on, especially in a world that's like, more and more continuous, more and more software-driven, where organizations are like working uh, really, really hard to become software-driven and to become elite in the way that they build and deploy their software. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a slight nuance that people might be curious about, the change in language from feature flagging to feature management. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a, a really good point. I guess the way that I think about it is that a feature flag is a tool. It's a means to an end. It's a mechanism. It's the the means by which you can achieve that change. And feature management is really the change that you want, the change that drives your business forward. Um, so when we think about feature management, we're not really selling you feature flags. Uh, we're selling you the ability to reduce risk as you deploy software, to uh, give you more ability to control how your customers or end users are experiencing your software and more ability to like measure the, the the software that you're building, the impact of the software that you're building. That That's the story we're trying to tell. It's not like you can use feature flags in your software development. Here, here's some feature flags. Yeah. Um, I think feature flags are incredibly powerful. What's a lot more interesting is like the capabilities that those feature flags unlock within an organization. Yeah, absolutely. It's the the shift in a style of working rather than just the tool that enables that. Much like DevOps, I think that's like a, a common confusion for people who are talking about DevOps. Um, and it's such like an ambiguous term anyways. Um, we see people, you know, use it in a way that's synonymous with CICD, which is, it just, it misses so much more <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that yeah, is absolutely. going on. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. That's really interesting. You guys have been doing this for a little while. When was LaunchDarkly founded? Uh, 2014. Okay, awesome. So you're you're a, close to the same age as we are. Uh, we were 2015. Yeah, we were one of the earliest customers of LogDNA. Yes, that's amazing. The product has changed a lot in that time on our side, but the industry has changed a lot in a short Absolutely. amount of time. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen that on your side as well. How have you seen specifically kind of the market's reaction to the concept of feature management change over those last five years or six, seven? However, seven. <laughs> yeah, no, it, yeah. it's 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 been a remarkable change. People talk about startups as you know folks that are able to see a wave before it, it comes in and and capitalize and ride that wave. And I think we have been able to do that. When we first started LaunchDarkly, it was hard explaining the value proposition. It was hard to get people to understand what we were, what we were trying to do. And there was this whole other space of experimentation and A-B testing 
that when people heard our pitch, people naturally gravitated towards that and thought that we should be in the same category as that and were confused as to why this was a different thing. Yeah. And so, you know, it was it was pretty difficult to raise funds when we started. We worked really hard to get our seed round closed and and to get our series A closed after that. And, you know, if you look at our sales for like the first year or so, it took a long while before we had some initial traction and before that really took off. If you looked at, you know, the first two years of our existence across all of our metrics, you wouldn't see anything that that even comes close to approximating like a hockey stick or anything close to that. It took a long while. Yeah. You know, what, one of the other lenses that I use to think about how the space has matured is, um, you know, we were very fortunate to have some folks at Microsoft uh, invite us to Microsoft Build, even as a really early stage startup. So we had a keynote talk in Microsoft Build, and I think in our second year of existence, um, and we've been fortunate to partner with Microsoft and, and continue to attend Microsoft Build uh, over the years. And I remember attending um, Microsoft Build the first year we were there, and people would walk up to our booth and go, what is this? I don't understand this at all. Yeah. A few years later, I came back to Build and, and um, joined in and, and sat at our booth. And um, we had customers, prospects coming up to us from some pretty notable companies. And the message went from like, what is this? I've never seen this before. What are you talking about? To we have a feature management initiative and we have budget set up for the next year. Tell us why you're the right solution for us or or we, we look at you as the leaders in the space. Tell us how to get there. That's amazing. Um, and that, that maturation is just, um, it's an amazing sign of, of how we've progressed. What do you attribute that to? Just like the, the shift in, in mindset. I mean, you can attribute it to yourselves if that's appropriate too. <laughs> like it might be, you know, yeah. just being out there educating people about what feature management is and why they should care about it. Yeah, I mean, it is that. It's an incredible amount of work on, by everyone on the team, from the marketing folks to the product folks. It, it's also like a, a, a convergence of a set of ideas on the DevOps side of the world that I think really aligns with our message. Things like the value of delivering software faster, things like um, like the Dora metrics and, and other movements to sort of become more quantitative and modern about our approaches to DevOps. Mm-hmm. Um, and an understanding that DevOps is... It's not just agile and it's not just, you know, like an issue tracking tool and a CI CD tool. It's a lot of stuff that happens in operation as well. I'm sure, you know, from logging a, you sort of see the same story of like, we need more tools to give us an understanding of what's happening at runtime. Right. And we fit into that bucket of, of, of things as well. Um, so it's, it's a lot of things coming together, I would say. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I think, Sometimes when talking about DevOps, there's such a strong focus on the developer side of it and pushing more things onto the developer. The developer should be thinking about operations and about security and about how their application runs in production, which is true. But we kind of miss this concept of operations should also be thinking about the development process and, you know, tying things to to moving quickly and getting new products out there that actually deliver value for the business. And we we think about that because of logs, obviously, like you just mentioned, <laughs> yeah. um, and you guys do too. But it's funny to see how often people kind of forget about the operators in in DevOps. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. One of the ways I think about it is like, 
there's really only so much you can lump onto a developer, right? They're like busy. You, they're like <laughs> the most taxed like resources. Developing software. And if you throw operations on them, like that makes them busier. And then now there's like a, you know, the, the, the DevSecOps movement. And it's sort of like, there's something behind all, all, all of those words, um, all of those motions that that is important. And I, I think it's not just like lumping it onto the developer persona. It's more about having those teams work together, right? It's, totally. it's more about having operations that are like operating as an integrated team with the developers and security folks operating as a team with developers. It's not about throwing more words on the developer or throwing more requirements on the developer to get a piece of code out into production and just throwing that on their plate. It's not like DevOps means everybody has to be a developer and an operator. DevSecOps means everybody has to be a security specialist and a, and a developer and an operations expert. That's just too much. Yeah. It's just more about teams being operating in a more integrated manner, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So we've just started kind of recording these sessions for this podcast, but I've had a chance to talk to a few folks already. And some of the concepts that have come up again and again are like talking about empathy and trust. Trust is just so foundational to the DevOps style of work. And I think it's cool that in every conversation, basically, that's come up and people are like, yeah, start there. Think about how we can lean on each other as experts in their respective roles. That's, that's where it has to start. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I'm really proud of our security team at LaunchSharkly, our application security engineers and, and the security team as a whole. And I think one of the things that we've done differently is like we've been, we've had them work really tightly and really closely with with our with our software developers. And we've got we kind of built that into into the culture of what we do. Um, like for example, like at a lot of organizations, governance, risk, compliance, that so that whole side of the world is like very antagonistic with the software development team. Yeah. But that's not the case here at LaunchDarkly. Everybody kind of, we're all kind of going in the same direction. Everybody understands um, the importance of those kinds of initiatives within what we do. And, and I see that in our engineers. I see that I see that in them having an enormous amount of trust in the requests that are being made to them from like the GRC side and from the security side. That's awesome. That's awesome. Talking about DevSecOps, I know it's kind of a buzzword. We... We think about it a lot at Log DNA. It sounds like you guys work in that style internally. Mm-hmm. But what about externally? How important is the concept of DevSecOps to your customers? Is it something that they're thinking about right now? It is. I think what our customers want to see is just that we have a, a mature practice. Yeah. A lot of what our customers say. I mean, so our, you know, our customers are, are enterprise software companies. What they're interested in is. I think the way that I think about it is, is sort of like when you bring on a SaaS vendor, when you're trusting a, a third-party SaaS vendor, there's a model where you're sort of like delegating part of the security uh, aspect of your business to them. Mm-hmm. And you're only willing to do that if you trust them to be as secure and as mature about security compliance risk as you are as an organization. So if you are counting you know, some of the, the you know, Fortune 100 as your customers, they're only as secure as you are. Yeah. And, and that's really what they're looking for is some assurance that you can operate um, with the same standards and the same maturity models as them. Absolutely. And I think if there was any hiding from that in the past, there is no hiding from that now. No. It's just, it's in everybody's faces. You 
you have to protect yourselves. Uh, you can't sell <laughs> software to the enterprise without maturity in those, in those dimensions. No, no. And even if you do have maturity in those dimensions, as you said, we've seen that can sometimes not be enough, which, you know, I get to the pleasure of working with the PR teams as well. So uh, we get to see a lot of that stuff. It's pretty insane. <laughs> All that's happened this year. Anyways, talking about, you know, enterprise software companies, what advice would you give leaders of organizations that are early in their adoption of of DevOps practices or just kind of trying to figure out how to implement some aspects if they're not ready to take the full leap or if they're making incremental change? I think my advice would be to try to detangle all of the things that seem you know, incredibly tangled as they're trying to get going in this DevOps story um, and try to find something that you can latch onto that you can pull out of that like incredibly tangled ball of yarn that will give you some forward progress. And, you know, I'm, I'm from LaunchDarkly. I'm going to sell feature flags to some degree. Um, yeah. But like feature flags are one of those things that, you know, we're, we're lucky as a company in that like you don't need to have a ton of prerequisites to take advantage of feature flags, right? Um, you don't have to have a really sophisticated deployment system. You don't necessarily even need a very sophisticated microservices architecture, right? There's a lot of prerequisites that you don't need to have and you can begin taking advantage of feature flags kind of immediately. And so one of my pieces of advice is like find those types of opportunities and latch onto them because otherwise it's it's incredibly difficult to, to sort of like tease all of the technical debt apart to tease all of the interdependent projects that are needed to really take you down the path towards modernization. I think the, the most terrifying way to go about a modernization or like a digital transformation world is to sort of go, okay, well, the first thing we have to do is like this multi-year, you know, monolith to microservices migration. Um, yeah. That would not be the way I, I would go about it. <laughs> I don't even know if people have that luxury now, I mean, I know that they do, obviously, but I think what we saw with a lot of our customers over the last 18 months is that they had plans for multi-year migrations that were forced to accelerate. And so they just, you know, they went with it. There was nothing else that they could possibly do, which in a way is cool. It, it may have made it messier, but also I think that it has helped advance the industry as a whole a lot more than it it may have in such a short amount of time. Yeah, I, I definitely think the pandemic in particular had to like force companies to accelerate. Um, yeah, you know, across the board, um, many companies that were making this transformation just suddenly realized that it wasn't a thing that they could afford to do two or three years from now. It was dropped in their lap as like an immediate now. Uh, we need this now. One of the things we saw was sort of like the uncertainty and the rapidly changing conditions um, required businesses to like really rapidly adapt to that change, whether that be like regulatory change laws or like, um, you know, we have customers in the um, uh, restaurant sector mm -hmm. in, in the food industry. And and they were, you know, sort of like going from like the these this world where they were having people dying in restaurants to a world where like based on the locale, based on the state, based on the county, even at times, regulations were different and those regulations were requiring them to deliver different software experiences to different customers right uh like if you're delivering if you're a pizza chain for example 
Um, in some locales, you could have in-store pickup and in others you couldn't. Right. Um, and you had to have your software that, uh, that adapted to that. And if you had to deploy that software every time you needed to change, you know, in, in response to regulatory change, um, you kind of would have been dead in the water. Yeah, absolutely. We also have had the opportunity to work with some industries where it was like, you can use this time to do a lot of the things that you wanted to, but but didn't have the time or resources, like the airline industry, for example. <laughs> that was definitely a moment to grab it by the horns and be like, okay, we're completely moving to cloud now, or we're shifting all of the stuff to a microservices architecture. There were some blessings in disguise there. You know, it, it's really hard to do that when you are operating at full speed. Yeah. So we saw that companies... kind of go two different ways, right? Some organizations exactly. embraced it as an opportunity and others were, you know, because of the fear on how long this would take or how it would uh, uh, impact their budgets. Um, there were some teams that just like paused on a lot of uh, innovation, um, like just yeah. stopped bringing in new initiatives or new technologies into the fold during that time. Absolutely. As a leader yourself, how how do you think about embracing those moments, you know, the, over the last 18 months, I'm sure you've you've faced the same things as many other uh, leaders of organizations. What's your approach? I, I think just being like thinking about the long term and sort of like operating against most likely outcomes um, is kind of like the, the, the best way to think about it. I think one of the things that I learned from um, like the last sort of like economic uh, crisis, like the, the global financial crisis, um, 2008 or so, was, um, you know, there were some companies that sort of looked at that as an opportunity, an opportunity to, for example, like hire talent or an, an opportunity to, to, to get ahead of things. And I think if you have longer term strategic initiatives, like multi-year planning cycles, you can you can kind of operate around that and make sure that you're capitalizing to some degree on on that uncertainty. Um, and we did that to us to, to, to some degree at, at LaunchDarkly as well. Like we accelerated some spend, even knowing that, you know, some of our customers were being massively impacted, um, right. you know, and that was, that was hitting our like renewal numbers and things like this. Right. Right. Cool. Awesome approach. Uh, to shift gears a little bit, I, I do want to drill into one thing that I think is central to LaunchDarkly, which is this concept of building with confidence and I would love to just have you kind of walk us through that and why you think that's so important and specifically important to this style of work that we're talking about. Yeah, I think um, building with confidence, I, I think the importance of that connects to um, the following idea, which is that the reason, a lot of times the reason why organizations move slowly with respect to like delivering change in software is fear. A lot of times what's holding you back is not the quality of your development team, but technical debt and the fear of changing code or the, the fear of making changes to software that's poorly understood. And that's holding you back. You know, I think the connection that, that folks are making now is like if your engineering teams are moving slow, if you're if you're developing software slowly and you can't deliver change at a rapid pace, you're falling behind. And the, the connection there is like you're sort of giving your teams fewer at bats, right? Like you're you're if your engineering teams can't move quickly, then you're unable to try out new ideas. You're unable to experiment. Um, you're unable to really move quickly enough to, to deliver great customer experiences. And I think once you accept that, like the, the connection between 
moving quickly and moving with confidence and delivering business outcomes becomes much more clear. Yeah. Right. You, you sort especially as your business transforms from being like software being a secondary part of the experience to software being the primary interaction point between your company and your customers, which is which is the reality that so many companies faced, you know, especially during the pandemic. We're now all doing all of our banking over a mobile application. So that banking experience had better be exceptional. I, I think the I think the thing holding back a lot of these organizations has been fear. And, and the thing that LaunchDarkly can provide, the thing that feature management can provide is, is that risk mitigation. And that helps you move faster. That helps you deliver better software experiences over time. Yeah, I love that. I was talking to uh, the our CEO recently and I asked him, you know, kind of this question, like, how do you feel about the statement, move fast and break things? <laughs> he was like, I like it, but move fast, break things, and then fix them before it's customer impacting. <laughs> yeah. I think that that has evolved, right? Like that, that's the old Facebook uh, circa, you know, 2006 yeah. uh, mantra. Yeah. And I think, I think, I think the way we've matured as an industry is that um, you know, the past 15 years have given us an opportunities to realize that that's kind of a false dichotomy. Totally. Like you can move fast and not break things. The way that most organizations want to operate is, is move fast and measure things. And measuring things means, yes, you have visibility into things that you broke, but also, you know, visibility into what you've done that's actually improved things. Visibility into positive change so that when you're making bets, you can invest more in, in the things that are working. Yeah, that's amazing. Move fast and measure things. Did you come up with that one? Just now. It, um, love yeah, it. <laughs> no, it's okay. You, It's from your mouth and we're recording. So you get the trademark on that <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I'll let your marketing people know. They'll be thrilled. I'm, I'm sure a number of people have thought of that uh, long before <laughs> me. So I, I will not. It's, it's a good one though. Thank you for sharing. Okay. Last question. What do you think the future of DevOps looks like? You know, I'll touch on on a point that we made earlier, which is um, that we have more and more teams operating in an integrated fashion. When I think about what the future of DevOps looks like, I think it's more of that. It's more of that extending beyond engineering roles. So beyond just mm -hmm. DevOps and DevSecOps, um, how do we take product managers and how do we integrate them more into the delivery practice? How do we take designers and integrate them more tightly into the delivery practice? It sounds abstract, but like a really concrete example of this is like, we're starting to roll out uh, what we call ephemeral environments in our workflow. So that means that anytime there's a pull request, there's a, a launch directly environment spun up that is posting that code or, or, or is, is deploying that branch of the code. And that means that designers can go in and interact with the things that their engineers have built, the designs that their engineers have built. And that's a way of bringing designers into this like continuous process, the, the software development lifecycle. When I think about DevOps, I think about sort of like more and more things moving into that that kind of mold where it's like collaborative software teams continuously operating together. And, and I think of it as, as a broader thing than just DevOps. I think of it as the way that software will be built in the future as a multidisciplinary kind of activity that's all operating continuously. That's awesome. And I don't think it sounds abstract at all. I mean, truly in, in my mind, it's like in the future sales and marketing and product and engineering all can collaborate because thinking back to even like, you know, the Phoenix project, right? This is the entire premise that it's built on mm -hmm. <laughs> that sales asks for something that engineering can't deliver. They're forcing them to create something 
if everybody has true insight into how their partners across the company are working and operating, you can build something that's so much stronger and that has input from the market and where sales is continually providing feedback to the product team about what customers are needing. Um, and that can influence, you know, the future direction of the product. So I love it. I think it's awesome. Yeah. I think if we can unlock that as an industry, if we can figure that out, uh, you know, the sky's the limit. What we can, what we can accomplish is, is going to be incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to talking to you again in five years and being like, remember when we talked about this thing and now it's real. Yeah, I'll, wait. I'll take my flying car to your to your office and uh, we'll have a conversation yes. with the person. <laughs> awesome. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us, John. Um, it's been awesome to chat with you. For people who would like to learn more about LaunchDarkly and feature management, where can they find out more? Uh, they can go to LaunchDarkly.com. That's a great way to find out about us. You can learn all about what we do, what our mission is, and, and how we can impact you uh, and your software development team. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. I'm Lise Jones. Thank you for listening to this episode of DevOps State of Mind, brought to you by LogDNA. If you want to hear more about the DevOps culture, subscribe to the show, and then pop over to our website at logdna.com to learn how to be more productive in a DevOps world. Links and information from today's episode will be in the show notes. And DevOps State of Mind was produced and edited by Pamela Lawrence from Studio Pod Media. Thanks. Talk to you guys later.